This might be the wildest story we've ever told you. Starts with a guy named David Wallace. He calls himself a fixer. Really, he's a dirty tricks guy. He gets paid to do shady things for the benefit of politicians and businessmen. He's been doing it for almost 30 years, ruining careers, setting people up, spreading oppo research, manipulating and deceiving the press. He's a rat fucker. I'm not trying to insult him. That's actually the term that's used for this sort of thing in politics. Rat fucking. And it's supposed to be a secret. That's kind of the whole point. The public sees the results of rat fucking. We're not supposed to see the act itself. But then last spring, David Wallace came clean. Or so he said. He said that he'd had enough of the game. He wanted out. He said he was tired of hurting people. And he was ready to blow the lid off of all of it. He was ready to reveal his powerful clients and to confess to everything that he'd done for them. And he had receipts, his emails, his texts, the phone calls he'd been secretly recording, thousands of pages of stuff. These documents were branded the Klondike Papers. We got our hands on a copy, as did a few other journalists out there, and everybody started furiously searching for big names who had been communicating directly with Wallace. Doug Ford is in there. Patrick Brown is in there. Brian Mulrooney is in there. The list went on and on, and many names seemed to come from the world of conservative politics. But what did the messages mean? And were they even real? And those are the two questions that my colleague, reporter Sheree Suturin, and I have been trying to answer for the last... Four months? More like five. And what was in the papers? Well, it led us down a rabbit hole. We found ourselves investigating a religious sect that some former members call a cult. We found ourselves talking to a businessman who was a reputed assassin. And we found ourselves trying to get to the bottom of a conspiracy about an alleged assassination plot against Justin Trudeau. I found myself having to ask Pierre Polyev sheepishly, who his biological father is. What ultimately resulted from our investigation was a story that is too big for just one episode. So instead, Sharice and I produced a new series, which we're going to release one episode at a time, starting with episode one of Ratfucker in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by a fraction of our listeners who give us a little bit of money each month so that all the rest of you can get our journalism for free. 150,000 people listening every week, 8 million downloads a year. It's free for everybody across Canada and beyond, all because less than one in 10 of you sends us a few bucks every month. And it pays for so much. It pays for this show. It pays for shortcuts and our politics show, The Backbench, our documentary show, Commons, Canada Land Back Now, Wag the Dug, our new French language show, Detour, every article that we publish, every news story that we break, every policy or law that gets changed because of our work, every good conversation that results, 
from the things people learn or hear here. Every new journalist that we have paid to publish their first story ever, all of that funded by just 10,000 people. They are generous people, but they are remarkably influential people. It's amazing what people can do with just a few bucks every month for 10,000 people to have that big of an impact on this country and a positive impact on the health of our very troubled news media. And what I want to say to you, the person listening to me right now, is that you're probably not one of them. And I want to change that. I want you to become one of them. I think the decision to support us here at Canada Land is like the best money you can spend on journalism in Canada. I think it's a no-brainer. And I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to tell you about some amazing things that we've been working on, things that we have been keeping under wraps so that we could reveal them to you now. There is a lot of stuff that we want to give you if you decide to become a Canada Land supporter. And it's going to take me a minute, but stick with me. It's going to be worth it. And yes, it should be obvious by now, this is crowdfunding month. Everything that we are going to accomplish in the year ahead will be determined by how well this month goes, by whether or not I am able to get through to you and convince you that this is something worth doing. Supporting us is worth doing. So here goes. As you heard, Sharice and I have been working night and day for months on an investigation. And we know that our long-form investigations are serious, like Thunder Bay and Cool Mules and the White Saviors. These are highly valued by our supporters. And this one is, is just shocking. It's a wild story about what has been happening in secret in conservative politics in Canada. And when I'm done this spiel, we are going to play everybody the first episode of that series, Ratfucker. And then for everybody else out there, they will get, you know, episode two and three, one at a time each week. But if you decide to support us, you will get that entire series right now. This is a story that as we were reporting it and investigating it, we were dying to know what happened next. What did he do next? And we worked to uncover that. I think you'll want to know that too as you listen to it. I think you'll want to binge this show and we want you to be able to do that because you support us. This is a way that we show our appreciation to the people who pay us to do the journalism. They get first access to it sometimes. And the place to go to do that is canadaland.com slash join. So in addition to that, our paid supporters are not just getting early access to some of our content, but what we're going to be doing is substantially increasing the amount of bonus content and extras that they and only they get. Here's something else. We want to meet our supporters. So we will be doing more live events than ever this year. Matea Roach will be taping an episode of The Backbench live next month in Toronto. And the plan is for her then to take that show on the road to smaller communities across the country. We're planning to do that across the network. We want our hosts and reporters to do events in your town. So when we do live events, live tapings, we will be hosting meet and greets, drinks or coffee for our supporters. We'll be inviting you to those events. We'll be offering you early access, free tickets to events like that all year long. We will also be connecting with you online if you want to connect with us. We'll be doing Ask Me Anything live streams. We will be sending you a new exclusive monthly newsletter just to our paying supporters. This is a lot, and it's a big change in the way that we're thinking about our supporters. I mean, yes, we still have Canada Land socks and tote bags and new toques, all of that merch, and our supporters get deals on that stuff and access to it that nobody else gets. But this year, we are expanding our membership program for supporters in a totally new way. And that's happening because of the entrance into our company of our new colleague, Alan. 
And he's really good at this stuff. He, he was doing it at a great organization called Hot Ducks before he was here. And he looked at our whole operation with fresh eyes. And he looked at our website on the canadaland.com slash join page. And all he saw were pictures of like socks. And he said, is this, is this what you're selling? Is, is this why people support you to get socks? Is that what you think? And that really sat with me, that question. That, that, that kind of got me thinking, do, do I even know the answer to that? Do I even know why people support us these days? I mean, I, I, I knew at the beginning when it was like a thousand people supporting us, it was very clear. It was just me. And I said, if you want media criticism in Canada, support Canada land. And, and, and then we grew and people supported us for all kinds of reasons. You know, some people supported us for shows like Thunder Bay. Some people like the fact that we talk about things that you don't hear about elsewhere, or we talk about it in a way that you don't hear elsewhere, or they value the fact that like you'll hear so many diverse voices and new voices on our podcast. Some people are very specific. They're funding us for climate coverage, like, like Sarah Larniuk's work on wildfires or Brandy Marin's story on, on the orcas and their relationship with the Salish people. We now have specific supporters who are interested in our French language show Detour. We have people who are very passionate about the backbench. We have a lot of people who support us for commons and that's their thing. And it's kind of gotten away from me, this question of like, what what is the core thing? What I learned by talking with some of you is that people are thinking of this a little bit differently now because things are pretty different than they were nine years ago. I think you know what I'm talking about. It's gotten really ugly out there. It's gotten really angry. It's gotten mean. It's gotten dumb in the discourse out there. Like it, it, it's not just social media. Like it's hard to have a conversation with people anymore and go into it openly and, and expect that it's going to be good faith. It's hard to have a conversation with your own family at like a holiday across generations. It's just so rare to hear people engage in good faith, make reasonable arguments, listen to each other. And that's really frightening when we stop being able to do that. And it feels like it's getting worse every day. And, and, and people are concerned about that because we don't know where it's heading. And the worst part, I think, is we feel kind of powerless to do anything about it. It's not easy to know what to do about it. Nobody's like giving us tools or choices to push back against it. I mean, here we are at the apex of technological innovation. It's sheer wizardry, what we're able to do. And the resulting products that are offered to us seem to only make things worse, to, to, to profit off of the anger and divide us further from each other or just isolate us from each other like never before, distract us from each other, reduce our attention spans like never before. And very much by accident, we are just doing something that is just like the opposite of that. Like podcasts are the opposite of that. 30 to 40 minutes of discourse and conversation and journalism, long form journalism is like the opposite of that. And what I learned by talking to some of you is we are offering you an option. We're one of the only people out there offering you an option, a choice to push back a little bit. It was not by design. That's a very lofty and, and high-principled goal. It's just sort of worked out this way. And, and look, I, I, I don't see Canada Land as, as the solution to the world's terrible problems, you know, um, nor do I think it's necessarily should be our goal. Like, we're going to heal the world and soothe the injuries and bridge the divides and find the common ground, and then we'll all sing together. No, that is very much not the project. Sometimes it is combative here. You know, sometimes the things that we reveal are ugly. Sometimes the voices that discuss it, sometimes my voice 
get angry. But on these shows, we are still talking to each other. We're still listening to each other. And our commitment to journalism means that we remain curious. So what does that mean in practice? It means that if somebody out there declares that the CBC is too woke and diversity is a problem, and everybody gets really angry with each other and yells at each other about that, this is where we ask that person to sit down and I ask them, what are you basing that on? And when someone out there declared that the discovery of graves at residential schools was a hoax and that it resulted in violent riots across Canada and people get very angry with each other about that take, this is where I ask that person, what evidence is that based on? When things happen, when Lisa LaFlamme was suddenly fired and the corporate line was that this was a business decision and there's nothing to see here, you know, we asked, really? And when they didn't answer us, we went out and spoke to a lot of people involved and found out the real reasons. That was us. So I guess what I realized was that that's kind of the special thing about this place. That's the reason why a lot of people support us is that we're one of your only options out there if you want to fund discourse and discussion and discovery of facts. And we may have to fight with each other. We may have opinions or principles or, or just interests that are in conflict and that cannot be reconciled. But if we stop using facts to sort out those differences, we're fucked. I think that's worth your support. We make it easy and we make it cheap. It is less than the cost of a bowl of ramen or a sandwich and fries to become a monthly Canada Land supporter. I, I know that these are tight times for a lot of people out there. I know that the amount of money that you spend on various digital subscriptions is greater than ever. I mean, that was like a new thing when we started. We were many people's first digital content subscription ever, and now people have too many of them. But let me ask you this. How many of those companies hitting your credit card bill every month for digital content are Canadian companies? If the only Canadian media companies that you're paying every month are like giant telecom companies, then I ask you to consider your choices. What we're going to have here in this country is completely based on what we choose. Please choose us. We will make you proud if you do. We'll give you our best work every day. We will work for you. We will hope to meet you and thank you and talk to you. We will do more of what we do. And if enough of you become supporters or increase your support this year, we will be able to bring you more climate coverage, more coverage of Indigenous issues. We will double the schedule of our French language show, Detour. We will create a whole new stream for finding and publishing new journalists, voices you haven't heard from before. That's really lacking from the news ecosystem in Canada, and we want to build that out. We will continue to hold power to account. But most of all, we will push back against the bullshit, and we will keep this space alive and thriving. I want you to do this right now. I know that sometimes I make this case, and it makes sense to people, and they connect with it, and they think to themselves, okay, th that worked. Why not? I will do that soon. And then life distracts them, and the moment is lost, and we've lost them. Don't do that. Right now, please, have a look. Go to canadaland.com slash join. Or if you're on your phone, it's even easier. Just bring up your show notes, your episode notes. Click the link. Try it out. It's kind of fun. It's not that big of a deal. I promise you. It just takes moments. You're overthinking this. Go to canadaland.com slash join. Become a supporter in like two seconds. And we will take this thing to the next level for you. 
as we move towards our 10th year. We're proud to be nearing that milestone, but it is nothing compared to what we have in store if we can have your help. Listen, these are tough times for facts. These are tough times for truth, for discourse, for discussion. The way to get through this is for those of us who care about that to support each other. And I'm asking for your support. Thank you. Uh, my name is David Wallace, and um, I guess I um, fix problems for people. I mean, I would do a lot of things. I would pass messages. I would arrange meetings between people. There were instances where, where uh, careers were destroyed. I don't believe anybody was ever killed as a result of, of any information, I, because I was very careful on what jobs that I would take, because you make mistakes. And part of what I'm trying to do now is rectify those mistakes. I can never fix them, but I can try to bring them to light and try to say, hey, look, these things happen in this world. And maybe somebody, maybe somebody takes a look, a deeper look at these stories and, and tries to ferret out people like me who are involved in them. Last June, a new conspiracy theory popped up and spread online. Millions of people suddenly heard about a document dump. It was supposedly an expose of the powerful. People were calling it the Klondike Papers. Holy shit. Have you guys looked into the Klondike Papers at all? This is fucked. We really outdid ourselves with the Klondike Papers, didn't we? Some crazy allegations among the Conservative Party and conservative individuals in Canada. There's this church, Plymouth Brethren Church. It's a, it's a cult. They've got thousands of businesses underneath their umbrella around the world. Jason Kenny talking to the fucking... Russian ambassador, very spicy. Some of those allegations include the organization and facilitation of the trucking convoy in attempt to have a coup and insurrection. You were puppets being run by the Plymouth Brethren Church. Uh, the murder for hire plot against our own prime minister of our country. An assassination thing on Justin Trudeau's head. I mean, seriously, I hate being right. But on this one, it's so embarrassing how wrong you guys are. It's just sad. It grew into a full-on conspiracy theory. And for those who believed it, it was proof positive that what they always suspected was true. The radical Christian right was secretly pulling the strings of conservative politics. To those who didn't believe it, the Klondike Papers was a leftist QAnon, proof that progressives are just as susceptible to fake news nonsense as anyone else. The conspiracy theory grew out of information from a political fixer turned whistleblower, a guy who said he was telling all about the secret dealings he was privy to, everything from Russian collusion with the conservatives to an assassination plot against the prime minister. A handful of news stories ran based on things found in those papers. But other journalists were quick to dismiss the Klondike Papers, saying that these insane conspiracy theories and the guy behind them were sources of dangerous misinformation. Most of the people posting online about the Klondike Papers hadn't actually seen them. People were reacting to what they had heard about the papers from others. No reporter wants to spread misinformation. But how can you dismiss or believe documents that you haven't even seen? We got our hands on a copy of the Klondike Papers. Specifically, 
we obtained a two-gigabyte file containing 6,400 pages of emails, texts, phone transcripts, audio recordings, and metadata. But we had more than the papers themselves. We knew the person they came from. His name is David Wallace. I first encountered him four years ago when he slipped into my DMs and fed me some information for a story. We spoke on the phone a couple of times. He told me there was a lot more information where that came from, and we set up a time to meet in person at a bench in a train station. He stood me up. Wallace is known to many reporters from his frequent attempts to shop us inside scoops on politicians. Sometimes he calls himself a fixer. Sometimes he calls himself a bagman. But there's another term for it. Rat fucking is basically killing your own opposition. Rat fucking is internal, dirty laundry that makes its way into the media. And I take on rat fucking jobs so I can get compromising material on politicians that I can use at a later date. See, for me, it's great to do their job, but now I'm in the dirty laundry, so there might be more work. That's rat fucking. By his own description, David Wallace is a professional deceiver, a guy who made his living for decades by manipulating people. And now he says he's ready to tell the truth. This is the story of how we try to sort fact from fiction, from a man we could not trust. A man standing at the center of one of this country's biggest conspiracy theories. My name is Sheree Sutran. I'm Jesse Brown. From Candleland, this is Ratfucker. In the spring of 2022, as the Klondike paper conspiracy theory was beginning to blow up online, Jesse and I decided that we needed to put eyes on this guy. Up till this point, David Wallace was largely just messages on a screen. We wanted to see for ourselves that he actually exists. And we wanted to hear his stories from his own mouth and maybe figure out a way to start checking them. So we left our downtown Toronto office and ventured out to the Wild West. This is the final boarding call for Flight 821 to Calgary. Canadian cowboy country, the city of white Stetson hats, outrageous oil wealth, and presumably David Wallace. We grab an Uber to the address he provided, but neither of us are sure if he'll actually show. Here yeah, we are. This is good, thank you. The car pulls up to where Wallace's house should be, but then, where is it? Is it on the other side of the street? There's a number 17, a number 21, no number 19. Maybe it doesn't exist at all. We walk up the front steps of the unmarked house and knock cautiously on the door. And then, there he is. How you doing? I'm all right. Hey. Come on in. Good to see you. He's in his 50s. He has a mane of flowing gray hair, so perfect, actually, that I spent about a minute trying to figure out if it was a wig. He wears shades, jeans, and a military bomber jacket over a tight black t-shirt. He kind of looks like, a, like he could be a roadie for an 80s rock band. The walls are covered in kids' drawings. Wallace's dog has to be put out so we can record. I'll get rid of him. Oh, it's a dog. Oh, baby, we're okay. supposed to stay upstairs. His elderly dad shuts the door. Wallace could maybe pass for a normal suburban dad. Until we start talking. 
I begin by asking him about the long scar that runs along his arm. How did I get cut? I got stabbed in a bar in St. Petersburg by a unhinged individual who was working for an oligarch. We had had words. Um, he had put a death sentence on my head. Um, he had sent a few people um, who did not accomplish their goal. And one night um, he caught me coming out of a bar and uh, I was attacked. I zigged when I should have zagged. But what's the story? The story is that when you do my type of work, sometimes the not so nice people fight back and they send people who um, would like you to reconsider your opinion. Our conversation went on like that for a while. Wild stories about clandestine meetings in far-flung Russian bars, under-the-table deals, multiple passports, multiple identities, in multiple languages. In other words, it was nothing that we could verify to find out if it's actually true. Until I asked him about how he ended up in Calgary. There were a lot of very powerful conservative financial interests in the province of Alberta who were extremely interested in removing Nahid Nanshi as the mayor of Calgary. And um, they hired and recruited me and brought me to Alberta to do just that. And then he told us quite a story filled with wild allegations. He said that in Calgary, he found himself working for local business developers with a political agenda. Wallace named names. And once we finally sorted it out, we realized maybe this is what we're looking for. Maybe this is something that we can actually check. And if it turns out to be true, maybe that would tell us something about the rest of the Klondike Papers. Maybe it would tell us if we could trust anything that David Wallace says. Let's start with the mayor. Nahid Nenshi was the first Muslim mayor of any major North American city, which is even more surprising in Calgary, which is staunchly conservative. Nenshi was an unlikely candidate a progressive with an agenda to curb the unfettered sprawl of housing development. Then she made enemies of most of the city's powerful real estate developers. This is Cal Wenzel, founder of Shane Homes. At one time, our industry used to regard the city as total partnership. Now, I don't know what's happened here. It's like we're the enemy. In 2013, Cal Wenzel assembled over a hundred fellow real estate developers for a private meeting at the right-wing think tank, the Manning Center. The purpose of the meeting was to, well, conspire. I mean, you can hear them do it. Somebody secretly recorded as he laid out his scheme. Dimitri asked me a question a little, a little earlier on. Can anyone beat Nenshi? And I said, no, likely not. I don't think he's beatable. But you know, it doesn't matter if you got the mayor on your side or not. You need eight votes. As long as you have eight votes, you can control whatever happens. Wenzel said that the popular mayor Nenshi was unbeatable in the coming election, but that he and his fellow real estate developers could control city council in a different way by targeting city councillors who were loyal to Nenshi, bringing them down, and replacing them with their own development-friendly candidates. You know, there are some people that are on the city council that are totally out of control. Wenzel ran through a list of councillors to oust, and he put a price tag on what it would cost to get rid of them. One of the things, uh, you know, when you're looking at getting rid of uh, you know, an incumbent, uh, you know, they need somewhere in the area of one hundred and fifty to $200,000. 
That's how much money these guys think they need. Wenzel ended his speech by asking everyone in attendance to do as he did, pitch in $100,000 to the cause. After the video was exposed, Cal Wenzel denied the money was used to, quote, buy a council. He claimed it was to support the Manning Center's work, training candidates for all levels of government. Wenzel signed off by letting his fellow developers know just how dire the situation was. I'm scared as hell, and quite frankly, if they were to win, I'm not so sure I'll stay in business. But Nahid Nenshi did win, and so did most of the councillors who Cal Wenzel schemed to take down. A few years later, Nenshi's enemies tried a different strategy. Yes, yeah, so I get these messages from Chad Holman. Uh, they're in the papers. They hired David Wallace. I am not a fan of Mayor Nenshi. Meet Chad Holman. I am obsessed that he served 11 years as mayor of the city. Um, I had, you know, volunteered on campaigns to beat him many times. But if my thought was, if there is a brewing scandal or if there's corruption around this guy, then let's expose it and I'll have to step down. Chad is a young Calgary politico. He gave us a copy of his DMs with Wallace. Wallace reached out first and suggested that he had dirt on Mayor Nenshi. Chad then raised the idea of paying Wallace to get rid of him. There's a large group of wealthy people that have wanted to expose the mayor's corruption for a while, Chad wrote to Wallace. I'm all in on having you do this. I'm currently working on fundraising money for you. Meanwhile, Wallace also reached out to Chad's dad, a political strategist and lobbyist named Alan Hallman. Alan Hallman was a top advisor to Jason Kenney, the former conservative premier of Alberta. He's a controversial figure in Alberta politics. He was charged with assault after taking a swing at a security guard at a party leadership convention, and that charge was later stayed. Also, he was banned from the party for a year after attacking his enemies within the party on social media. He's been questioned by the Mounties as part of an open investigation into voter fraud. I found a phone number for Alan Hallman in the Klondike Papers, and I dialed it. Hi, is this Alan Hallman? Yes, it is. Alan, it's Jesse Brown calling from Canada Land News. I'm looking into a story that was brought to us by a guy named David Wallace. You know David? Yes. Yes, I've met him. He says that he worked for you for some time. Yes, correct. What did he do for you? um, Well, he did a number of things. I'm not sure I want to share with you exactly what he did. He's a con man, right? Uh, and, he, and I think he's a pretty good con man. Chad Hallman connected Wallace with a conservative fundraiser and campaigner named Prem Singh. He says she got the money for the job from others. I knew that the Wenzels were part of Prem's fundraising network prior to that, but I think Prem really hoodwinked them as, as to you know what she was doing. It's no secret in Calgary that the Wenzels uh, and then she do not have a good relationship. She would have gone to them saying, hey, we've got a brewing scandal with Nenshi. We can get it out, but we need to pay this guy for his time to collect all the evidence and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, then we'll, we'll get rid of Nenshi and have a new mayor. An email in the Klondike Papers from Cal Wenzel's wife, Edith, to Prem Singh, reveals that Edith and her son Shane both funded a plan to remove Mayor Nenshi. Edith writes that she met three times with Prem and her unsavory friend. She wrote that she found his scheme suspicious, but still contributed more money to the effort. 
Neither Edith nor Shane Wenzel responded to our requests for comment. Prem Singh denies that she hoodwinked anyone. She confirms that she did take money for the project from the Wenzels and gave it to David Wallace. She says that it was all his plan, though, and that she didn't really know what he was up to. This group that Hallman recruited me for were alleging that the mayor was corrupt, that was he was accepting uh, uh, donations from businessmen for political favors, and that they wanted to remove Mayor Nenshi and expose his criminality. Taking the information that was given to me, I suggested that we run what's known as a big store con. Basically, uh, set up office space, come in as a uh, swinging dick, so to speak, that I have foreign money that needs to be invested, and that money would uh, involve people who would be on the sanctions list in in Russia. Um, There was money available. The goal of the operation was not to get illegal money into Canada. It was to set up a scenario in which these supposedly corrupt politicians were put in a compromising position on tape where they were accepting favors in exchange for acting as cover to wash these funds. That was the premise. Holman uh, had me meet up with a, a young lady here. So she arranged the party invitations for me to be at, such as the premier's breakfast, the July 4th garden party at the U.S. Embassy or consulate or whatever the hell it was here. Places that I could meet with the players. Uh, An Italian uh, dinner, award dinner festival where I met up with some counselors who had influence. That was my first week in Calgary, where I established contact with uh, Councilman John Carlo Carra. My name is Giancarlo Carra. I am a city councillor in the city of Calgary. I have the honor of representing Ward 9. One day at a Calgary Stampede event, he was approached by a talkative stranger. And so we show up at the Italian Cultural Club and a gentleman introduces himself to me as David Wallace. And obviously a very slick talking guy He's like so i understand you're in mayor nenshi's camp or something like that it's like i would love to get a meeting with mayor nenshi uh, i'm representing significant investment into the city of calgary from foreign sources we are interested in investing in real estate yeah he looked like a guy who could sort of handle himself he's gotten very thin in recent years the last time i saw him he was almost emaciated, but at the time he looked like a guy who, if he told you he was, uh, you know, a personal security person or an ex-military guy or something like that, you'd believe it. I was like, so who are you representing and how much money are we talking about? And uh, he said, well, I'm representing legitimate interests out of Russia and uh, we're talking about $40 billion. And I was like, excuse me? With a B? He's like, yeah, with a B. And I would love to sit down with Mayor Nenshi, but I can't get a meeting with him. Wallace said he did talk to Nenshi directly, approaching him at several public events. But the mayor, he says, politely declined to schedule a meeting and instead directed him to the proper channels. I sort of explained to this Mr. Wallace that, you know, that's not how our mayor rolls, but it's not because he's not interested in foreign investment in our city. He just, there are processes to follow. I said, but, you know, I come from a real estate background myself, and uh, I have no problem taking you on a tour of, of things that could benefit in our city from foreign capital. He said, I would love that. And they took him on a tour of 
mostly East Calgary opportunities in my ward, but also some other citywide opportunities that are significant city building opportunities. And he was excited by that. And we had a couple more meetings over the course of that summer. He kept on coming back to the idea that we needed to create a bilateral relationship between the city of Calgary and the Russian government. Councillor Kara did not necessarily believe that Wallace was for real. But he didn't necessarily disbelieve it either. It's interesting to see whether this guy is, you know, actually who he says he is. And, and you know, when we meet a lot of people in this job... And I've learned that, you know, some people are completely disassociated from reality and talk a good game and, you know, living in their own fantasy world. Some people tell you absolutely fantastical stories and they turn out to be true. And so I've learned over my almost 12 years in this job to keep an open mind. Carl wondered if Wallace actually had what he claimed, connections to powerful Russian interests. Then one day, he got a phone call that lent considerable credibility to Wallace's story. I was visiting my brother in Chicago later that August and got a call from someone purporting to be in the Russian embassy. You know, and it was a scheduled call and someone called ahead of time to sort of set it up. It was both extremely official and very personal. And the idea that this was a total fantasy was hard to reconcile. You know, we we talked about how he was sending his kids to Canadian summer camp. I'm talking to this and I'm like, you know, if this guy is a confidence man, this is a pretty amazing cast of characters that he's been able to sort of pull together to sort of pull off his delusion and bring me along with it. You might be wondering here if David Wallace may have enlisted a Russian-speaking accomplice to impersonate a Russian state official. We wondered that too, just as we wondered whether or not David Wallace might have forged the emails that are found in the Klondike Papers, which document his extensive correspondence with Russian government figures. In the papers, Wallace is in regular contact with Russian Press Secretary Kirill Kalinin, who was expelled from Canada in 2018 for posing a security risk to Canada. Now, the Russian consulate won't tell us if those emails are legitimate or not. But then we found this recording among the Klondike Papers audio files. Hello. Hello, Mr. Strokoff. It's uh, David Wallace calling. How are you, sir? Uh, Hello, Mr. Wallace. I'm fine. How are you doing? Excellent. I was uh, wondering if you're available on Thursday. I'm going to actually be in the Ottawa area. Okay, let's have something between 12 and 2. Perfect. Uh, Should I just come straight to the embassy? Okay. Is that convenient for you? Wallace says the man he was speaking to there is Sergei Strokov, Senior Trade Commissioner of the Russian Federation. And then finally, Wallace pointed us to photo evidence that came directly from the Russian state. In August of 2019, the Consulate General of Russia in Toronto tweeted three pictures documenting a trade meeting between Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, Ontario, and Kirill Mikhailov, the Russian Consul General. In the second photo, there's a man sitting next to Mikhailov. The man is wearing a white, collared, button-down shirt and a pair of eyeglasses. His short gray hair is styled conservatively, and he looks heavier and healthier than the man who we met in the suburbs of Calgary. But there's no mistaking him. 
it's David Wallace. Calgary City Councilor Giancarlo Carra came to the same conclusion. Wallace's claims of Russian connections are for real. But that doesn't make the money legitimate. What if the $40 billion that Wallace was promising was coming from the wrong Russians, the ones on the international sanction list? What if it's dark money, illegal money? Kara decided to investigate further. I have a business associate, a friend of mine, and a prominent business person in the community who does venture capital work. And I was like, look, I've got this guy rattling around representing someone. And so he took him out, got him drunk, and found out what the business plan was. And what he told me after he spent time with David Wallace was, look, this guy is not representing legitimate financial interests coming out of Russia. This guy is representing billionaires on the band list, and his business model is to have them give him money, him invest that money. If they ever get off the international band lists and are legitimized, then he has to give them all their assets that he's built back. Otherwise, they kill him. So he's like, just stay away from this guy. And I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and I had the opportunity to discuss my interesting uh, relationship with this individual, uh, with Mayor Nenshi and Mayor Nenshi's chief of staff. And they were just like, red flag. <laughs> big time. They said, you know, uh, we're, we're not going to be signing any sort of bilateral trade agreement letters or anything like that. Mayor Nenshi turned out not to want a dime. He wasn't corrupt. Unless it was legitimate, clean money, they were willing to discuss and look at it, but they were not willing to engage in any illegalities. They would not bite. Let's face it, when you come into Calgary, and there is a lot of corruption here. Unfortunately, the people who hired me were the corrupt ones, and I couldn't get any traction on a mayor who wasn't really interested in enriching himself. So, I mean, I, I would have loved for him to have been corrupt. It would have made my job easier. I can only set the table. It's up to them if they want to eat. If the mayor had taken that meeting with Wallace and been secretly videotaped, the plan was to leak the evidence to the press. Here he is, our beloved mayor, the virtuous progressive, soliciting dirty, dark money from Russia. If he was guilty, if Nenshi was corruptible, if he bid on it, we were going to release it publicly through a media campaign. And we were going to do that to force public opinion. There's no way in hell you needed a court. You don't need a court. But he wouldn't bite. He wasn't interested. The failed plot to deceive, corrupt, and entrap Mayor Nenshi, which by the way, was called Operation Peacock, it was pretty serious. Nenshi was a democratically elected leader. The people of Calgary chose him in a landslide victory. The fact that his enemies schemed in the shadows to remove him from power, not by challenging his policies, but by using lies and deception to trick him and then oust him in the middle of his term. Well, needless to say, it's not the kind of thing that is supposed to happen in a modern democracy. And we wouldn't have ever even known about it if not for David Wallace. As it turns out, we're not the only reporters who tried to verify his claims. 
It's a double political scandal for a former Alberta justice minister and a look behind the typically closed doors of backroom politics. You may remember Jonathan Dennis. He served as justice minister under Premier Prentice. He's alleged to have hired someone to access a then-Calgary Herald reporter's phone logs. The Canadian press speaking with the man hired to get the phone records, the so-called political fixer, who warned Dennis obtaining the logs could be illegal. David Wallace sharing his story because he is tired of doing work that compromises people and may put them in dangerous situations. Dennis denies the allegations. And he kept on denying them for three days, at which point Jonathan Dennis admitted that, yes, he had hired David Wallace to investigate that reporter, although he denied asking Wallace to obtain her phone logs. It was a news story in which parts of the Klondike papers actually checked out. And then last June, there was another news story. The news site Press Progress followed the Klondike Papers and found that, yes, Russian officials did try to flow money into the province of Ontario through Premier Doug Ford's government. They ran another story confirming that a senior official in Ford's office asked to meet with Wallace after Wallace told him that he had been conducting surveillance on one of Ford's own ministers and was willing to share what he had learned while spying on them. Here's Press Progress editor Luke Lebrun. Despite some of the emails detailing fairly outlandish scenarios, we were actually pretty surprised by how many of the people confirmed that these messages were authentic and backed up some of the things that uh, Wallace was saying. The Toronto Star confirmed that two federal law enforcement officers visited the home of political organizer Alan Hallman. Remember him? It was part of their ongoing investigation into voter fraud. Fraud, which, by the way, Alan Hallman denies. Both police officers left behind audio recording devices in Holman's home, which Holman later discovered. Both officers later claimed that it was a mistake, a mistake that they had each independently made. Again, that story began with a claim from David Wallace. Here's Stephen Marr, the journalist who reported that story. It was one of a number of things that Wallace was involved with in Alberta, where you end up being somewhat surprised by the kind of background shenanigans that were going on among people close to uh, the premier and the governing conservatives. There was a fair amount of what people in the business call rat fucking. Forgive me for using the bad language, but I don't know of any other word with the same connotation. All kinds of people basically scheming, recording one another, double-crossing one another, and this is just a part of that. Alan Hallman is just one of the people who Wallace says he once worked for, but who he now wants to expose in ruin. I hope all these rotten sons of bitches go down. I really do. He says he has little to lose. I don't give a fuck. And here is where David Wallace finally speaks to a question that we've been asking ourselves from the start. Why is he telling us all of this? In 2012, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's follicular lymphoma slow growth. I was told I was terminal. Uh, what's it saying? Uh, uh, dead men tell no tales, but dying men tell no lies. Terminal cancer, a deathbed confession. What a convenient way for a lifelong deceiver to explain why he should now be trusted. How do you find out for sure if somebody really has cancer or if they're faking it? We were stumped. 
But one day, when reporter Luke Lebrun was trying to figure out anything he could about David Wallace, he did a reverse image search on a headshot picture that Wallace used on his LinkedIn profile. And that's how he stumbled across this video. CleanMeds is a randomized control trial where we're testing the effects of providing people with a carefully selected set of medications completely for free. Um, I woke up in the middle of the night. I, I was covered with sweat. I went into the emergency room. So we did an ultrasound and blood test and uh, uh, they wouldn't let me go home. They told me that I had lymphoma. It was posted in 2018 by doctors at Open Lab, which is part of the University Health Network family of hospitals in Ontario. Open Lab confirmed that Wallace was, quote, part of the intervention group for clean meds, and he received free medication for a year as part of the study. The guy really does have cancer. Or at least he did. So that's one thing that checked out. And then... It happened again. Later in our investigation, a breakthrough. No matter how many tidbits from the Klondike papers turned out to be real, the question of forgery still hung over the rest of the documents. After all, anybody can make fake emails or texts in Photoshop. But then, instead of just having access to screenshots and text that had been copied and pasted, we obtained login access to one of the key email accounts from which the Klondike paper files originated. It's a ProtonMail account, more secure than Gmail, with an inbox of contemporaneous messages from verified addresses stretching back for months. We consulted with a couple of computer security experts. They detected no forgery. And while any kind of data can hypothetically be manipulated, we were told that forging an entire ProtonMail account of emails zipping back and forth between people for months, faking that would require backdoor access to ProtonMail itself. All of which is to say, we reached the opinion that the Klondike papers from that email address are legitimate. And so while others are unsure about whether the files are real, we were able to start asking what they mean, what they reveal, and who they expose. After a day of recording in his suburban home, Wallace says he has to go pick up his kids. He sees us out. As we wait on the curb for our ride to come, he sets off on foot. We're just waiting for our Uber, three minutes. Hi, you got the Uber, so I'm going yeah. down to the bus stop just in case, PIs, I don't like them. What's that? This swear. It's in a bag. All right. In case you missed that, I just whispered to Jesse the question, is that a gun? Usually something like this makes them feel more friendly. <laughs> it's carrying a gun. That's the implication. <laughs> so David just came out of his front door with some, he's brandishing uh, something in a green bag that he uh, indicated. Suspiciously like a pistol. A dissuader, he called it. And yeah. uh, I think the idea is he's, he's, he's walking he's <laughs> through the streets. He's marching through the streets of the suburbs. To pick up his kids. Yes. With a concealed weapon. In a green grocery bag. That is what is happening. Our worst fear was trusting David Wallace as a source only to have his story fall apart. But the opposite is happening. The more we learn about Wallace, the more his story comes together. His name really is David Wallace. 
he does indeed have Russian government connections. He did, for a fact, do dirty tricks for conservative operatives. And he does look gaunt and emaciated compared to how he used to look before he had cancer. All of that is true. So does that mean that the rest of it is true? Because what you've heard so far is just the tip of the iceberg. After all, the Klondike papers did not go viral based on Wallace's story of the plot against the former mayor of Calgary. No, the conspiracy theory, the full theory, is much wilder. It's a theory that contends that an exclusive fundamentalist Christian sect secretly influences conservative politics in Canada. It's a theory that this group covertly funded the occupation of the country's capital and schemed to assassinate the prime minister. And it's a theory that Wallace says he's bringing to light because members of this sect hired him to do something that went beyond anything he'd been paid to do in his career in the dirty tricks business. Something he says he couldn't stomach. The name of this group is the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. The Brethren don't think of themselves as a church. They are the church. Nearly everybody I know, every family that I know in the Brethren has somebody that are shunned. Once you are shunned, you are as dead. I wasn't to speak to my wife or my children. And if they've spoken out, they've been hunted down. The church hired private investigators to to find me. Sleeping at night, knowing that my perpetrator is walking those streets. If you find out that other brethren are doing something illegal, you do not go to the authorities. I know I wasn't the only one. I mean, the Brethren have huge political influence globally. They have made their influence felt. The Plymouth Brethren Christian Church denies all of it. Who are the Brethren? That's on the next episode of Ratfucker. To hear all of Ratfucker right now, including an exclusive bonus episode about how David Wallace got into the dirty tricks business, Support us at canadaland.com slash join. Ratfucker is written and reported by me, Cherie Sutran. And me, Jesse Brown. Tristan Capacchione is our audio editor and sound designer. Original music by Nathan Burley. Editorial support from Sarah Larniuk. And Jesse Brown is our executive producer. You can listen to Ratfucker ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. 